You're listening to episode 35 of Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Let's chat. Discover children at a whole new level. Be empowered to grow with the children in your life. Welcome to Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Hi there and welcome to Chat About Children where we chat about all things children and empower you to grow with the children in your life. Today's episode is about kids and social skills. Social skills is a huge area, it's a huge topic and it is broad, but it is important and very important to our children's well-being and also our well-being. So today's episode is a little bit of a longer chat with my guest, Alex Kelly. What we cover off today is looking at things such as social skills development and what we mean by social skills. We'll also look at understanding the connection between self-esteem and social skills, which is something that is often not really acknowledged or looked at. And you'll also want to stay tuned into Alex's answer of what if a kid doesn't want to make friends or doesn't want friends. So stay tuned to listen to her answer to that one. We also touch on technology and the impact we feel uh, for the better or worse that it is having on social skills. And Alex also helps us learn a little bit more about her long-spanning successful social skills program, as well as her exciting upcoming news and events. So I hope you enjoy the chat about children today on Kids and Social Skills. Joining me today is Alex Kelly. She's a speech and language therapist with over 30 years experience of working with people who have difficulties with their social skills, self-esteem and their relationships. She is best known for being an author of 13 books, including the hugely popular Talk About Resources, which are practical books to help staff to develop children's social skills. Alex left the National Health Service in 2009 and now runs her own business called Speaking Space. She runs this with her husband, who was a teacher. Speaking Space provides training and consultancy work, speech and language therapy and occupational therapy into over 40 local schools and a day service for adults with intellectual disabilities and autism. They have recently been accredited by the National Autistic Society with advanced status, making them the only speech and language therapy service in the UK to be accredited by the NAS and the only day service in England to have advanced status. She also continues to run Alex Kelly, where she develops resources on social skills and continues to research the effectiveness of social skills work in schools all around the UK. Alex also lectures internationally on social skills and is well known for being inspirational and passionate in her work and with people who have disabilities. Welcome to Chat About Children, Alex. How are you? Thank you, Sonia. How are you? I'm doing well and I'm very grateful for you joining this episode of Chat About Children because social skills is a massive, massive topic and I'm sure you agree, right? I totally agree. It's so fundamental to everything that we do as human beings, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And before we get into the whole topic of social skills, just let us learn a little bit about you first, Alex. What got you into speech pathology initially? Well, my brother had a stammer. So I kind of, it was always a bit on my radar, I suppose. But to be honest, I wanted to be an actress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I got turned down by the National Youth Theatre at the tender age of 16. And oh. so actually, um, my mum suggested speech therapy. She said to me one day, you like to talk, Alex. Um, why don't you think about speech therapy? Because we'd had it in the family. So I think she was aware of it as a profession. And I thought, yeah, okay, that sounds cool. So, yeah. <laughs> and the rest is history. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, 
And look, social skills, I mean, some people know more than others, speech pathologists work on a huge range of different areas. And social skills is one of those areas. So for you, at what moment did you realize social skills were a specific area of clinical interest to you? What was kind of that moment where you were like, oh, like, I really want to get into this area and make it a niche? Yeah. Well, I suppose it's a bit of a story. I discovered while I was doing my degree that I wanted to work with people with intellectual disabilities. I did a two-week placement that was life-changing. I walked in and by the second day, I knew that's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I thought, oh, you know, it was just so me. And I think when you work with primarily with people with intellectual disabilities and also autism, I think the whole focus as a therapist is functional communication. You know, you are thinking, how can I help this person to make friends? How can I help them to interact and uh, with people so that they can go off and get a job? You know, so our whole focus as a clinician should be around that functional element of interaction. And therefore, we're talking about social skills. Um, so started working in intellectual disability and I was in my second job. And I was working in a college with a whole, so when I say a college, it's, I think in Australia, you call it uh, something different. It's not a university. So I was working in a, like a, it's uh, young people with an intellectual disability who are, have just left school. They're kind of extending their education a little bit. I think in Australia, you've got a different term for it. Is it a TAF maybe? Similar to a college. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I was working with these young guys and I was working on social skills and I was I started to see a pattern. And this was the beginning of talk about. So I can talk about that now if you want to or a bit later. Um, but yes, so it was at that point when I thought, wow, actually, I can make a difference, but we have to work in a certain way. Um, we can't just pitch in and start teaching people to be assertive. We have to do it in a very structured way which is the basis of talk about, which is that's what got me started in actually writing about the area. Yes. And it's a huge series. And yes, we are going to talk about that more a little bit later because it's had a lot of success and I think for good reason, and you've touched on it. And that's because you've broke social skills down into its subcomponents, into its little components, and you're explicitly teaching them basically. And often just to take it back a step, Alex, we as speech pathologists, and for myself, you know, with over 20 years as I would say more of a generalist speech pathology background, social skills, I would say, are one of those areas that are very often taken for granted. Whether there's a diagnosis of something or not, I find that most parents, carers, etc., even when they're sending their kids to school, what do they want most? They want them to make good friends and to have friends and to be happy. And often a child's kind of happiness or well-being when they're at school is often it comes down to those relationships and those friendships doesn't it you know that's funny you should say that because when I talk to people I often say you know as parents what do we want for our children you know I've got three boys and I often say when I leave school I want three things for them I want them to feel good about who they are I want them to have friends and I want them to be able to go on and get some kind of employment, even if it's supported employment. I want them to have a reason to get out of bed in the morning, to have a meaningful thing to do during with their life. And actually for my boys to have those three things, and I think all parents want this, you know, my boys have got to have an okay self-esteem, but for friends and to get a job, 
my boys have got to have good social skills, you know, and every parent wants their child to be able to be happy and accepted by their peers. And social skills are fundamentally a huge part of that. We need to be socially competent to be accepted by peers, to make friends. And it's just a big stumbling block for some children. So yeah, I totally agree. It's a huge part of us being happy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And when we talk about subcomponents, because for me and you, we talk about social skills and my mind, you know, automatically knows that we're referring to things like taking turns in a conversation, having good eye contact, knowing the distance to kind of stand from a person, like those kinds of things. Tell us a little bit more about the specific areas of what makes up social skills, just so that the listeners are aware of what is it? You know, what are those little components and how do they develop from birth to school age? Well, I suppose when we're defining what we mean by social skills, if we take it back a step, you know, what do we mean by being socially skilled? And I think that at a very basic level, we could answer that question by just saying it's about the skills that we use when interacting with other people, exactly what you're saying, um, so that we are seen by other people to be socially competent. So it's a little bit about the skills that we are using in an appropriate way so that when you're interacting with me, you think I'm being competent. So what are those skills? Um, they are lots of nonverbal skills and then there are verbal skills. So basically, when we think about social skills, I like to break them down into those nonverbal skills and verbal skills. By nonverbal, we're looking at the body language skills. Um, so uh, whether I use eye contact, for example, or what my facial expression is, is doing. We look at how I'm sitting, how I'm standing. We look at gesture, how much we use our hands. We look at even how I dress, you know, whether that's appropriate to the situation. So we look at personal appearance, we look at fidgeting. Those, that's what we mean by body language. The other side of our nonverbal communication is what we refer to as speech pathologists as paralinguistic skills. And that's the way we use our voice in terms of our intonation, our rate of speech, our volume. So those are the things that we use on top of our speech to kind of give us emphasis or to show that we're interested in someone or that we're very sad. So that's our, um, so those are our paralinguistic skills. So those are all our nonverbal skills. Then you've got your verbal skills, which are your conversational skills. Now, by this, we mean, you know, how do you do you listen within the conversation? Do you show that you're listening? Um, can you start the conversation up appropriately? Or do you just zoom straight in? Um, can you take turns, uh, ask questions appropriately, answer questions? Uh, can you be relevant? And then can you close the conversation appropriately? So those fundamental level, those are the skills that we are learning to be socially skilled. Then what is interesting is on top of that, so kind of the final stage of being socially skilled is to be able to use those skills together to be assertive. So when we think of someone who is, oh, they are so socially skilled, they're so socially competent, we're often picturing someone who can be appropriately and effectively assertive so that they can express their feelings confidently. They can disagree with people appropriately. They can actually stand up for themselves effectively and appropriately. So the assertiveness is like what we're aiming for. 
that's the kind of the final stage when we can pull everything together. Um, so those are the kind of the core components. And in terms of development, it's gosh, that's a, you know, it's a very difficult question to answer in the sense that there is no agreed milestones for some of these things. It's not like, you know, a lot of things, you know, we would expect a child to walk at this age, we'd expect a child to sit up by this age. You know, there is no totally agreed milestones for social skills because there's so much is dependent on the child's temperament, their personality, their family makeup. So even down to what position they are in the family, it depends on the environment. On So there's so many things that affect a child's reaching these kind of these stages. But having said that, I would say that, you know, we can look roughly and think that, okay, by the age of, say, six months, I would expect a child to be initiating some social interaction. You know, they would initiate peekaboo, which would be the kind of, you know, the beginnings of that social interaction. By 12 months, I would be expecting some shared attention. They're beginning to take in turns with their babbling or their simple words. You know, by two years, we expect children to be asking questions, following adults' body language, that sort of thing. By three years, they're holding, maybe holding a conversation, but they may jump from topic to topic. By four, I would expect to start seeing children beginning to use some of the assertiveness skills in there. You know, they're beginning to disagree. They're maybe not very good at it, but they're beginning to show that. But by five, I would maybe expect children to start using language to negotiate, to discuss their feelings, to give opinions. And then really, I would expect by the age of sort of seven, eight, for children to have quite a, a good a use of their assertiveness skills. So they could actually be quite effective and appropriate in their assertiveness but having said that, you know, we mustn't be, you know, I, I don't want anyone to totally quote me on that and say, oh, my child is five and they're not doing this because there are so many factors that will affect when a child reaches um, those skills. But that's roughly what we could look at. Yeah. And I think absolutely right, Alex. I mean, we've got to consider those, all those other factors and especially those little personality traits or the characteristics of some people where it just their nature isn't that way inclined. However, they may have that skill set that they know when to kind of, okay, I've got to pull out my assertiveness skills now, but, you know, they're not kind of the, let's call assertive personality, you know, so there's all those other factors that I think are important to consider. And within those stages, you've mentioned some really important communication milestones. And that's often where, you know, as speech pathologists and even pediatricians and doctors and parents, we look at just some of those basic things very, very early on, don't we? And we just kind of go, okay, are they making eye contact? Do they have those play skills? Can we take those simple turns? Are they understanding what I'm saying or using eye gaze? And all those basic milestones. So I guess, and I know the answer to this, but help the listeners understand at what point do you find you're getting a lot of referrals? Hopefully it's earlier than like many years ago, I was a bit concerned about how late some referrals would come in. But are you finding that there is a bit more awareness now? And what age are you seeing referrals coming in? And what are parents and professionals picking up nice and early now? I think most referrals come in actually when the child is just about to start school, which 
I think is a shame. It's a little bit late, I still think. So I think parents often get that sort of sudden concern that their child is going to school and they're aware that actually they are maybe going to struggle or they've just started school. And I think that's possibly the most common time. They've just started school and it stands out um, that they are struggling with their peer relationships. I would have said that that's probably our most common reason for referral is in terms of their social skills is my child isn't hasn't got any friends or is struggling or the other children don't like them or they don't know how to behave in the classroom or at the playground. So I do think that the social skills referrals come in mostly from four onwards. I think girls, it's slightly different. I think we see girls coming in a bit later. And of course, a lot of the people that referred to me, autistic, And so what we know about girls and autism is that they are generally get diagnosed, well, on on average, about a year and a half later than boys. And so you often see later referrals, don't the diagnosis, and therefore we see later referrals for girls. So, yeah, so I would have said that that's that's mostly when we see the referrals coming in is kind of like four onwards. Yes. And you've mentioned autism spectrum disorders. So obviously, as a clinical population, you know, it is well known that social skills is an area that often needs to be explicitly taught. And what other clinical populations are you also predominantly working with? I'd say ASD would be your largest one, right? What other populations do you also work with? Yeah, so the three largest populations are autism, intellectual disability, and the other area is actually just low self-esteem, mental health difficulties. So the kind of the, the child that is has not got a diagnosis, but is uh, struggling with their mental health, struggling with their low self-esteem, struggling with school life is the third. And whether they then go on and get a diagnosis is another thing. But but actually, that's another area of children who are just not coping well with life with school. Mm. It's a really stressful thing for parents and carers. As we said at the start, we just want our kids to be happy and to connect with others and have a strong peer group. Tell us about a success story? Because often that's a thing that, again, parents worry about and they go, okay, you know, we'll start. Here, you know, there's a lot of awareness and I'm sure it's there in the UK too, but they might start like play skills groups and things like that, even well before the child has started school, particularly if the diagnosis has occurred early. So there is that proactive sense of, okay, let's get involved with other parents and, and get the play skills happening and all of that very regularly. What is the prognosis? What is a success story that you can tell us about or success stories where you've seen a child come in that's something that stands out in your mind, Alex, someone come in and what's been the transformation for them? Oh, gosh. Okay. Many to choose from. So many to choose from. I kind of want to talk generally about what are the things. I will tell you a couple of success stories if you want. I think what I want to do is then maybe emphasize what the kind of the key things are that really help a child to be to improve yes so a lot of my own work is with young adults so teenagers and and young adults so I'm going to tell you a couple of stories one is a young man who came actually into our day service and he had selective mutism and autism a mild intellectual disability 
And he had been a selected mute for actually for many years. So he was 22 when I started working with him and he'd been a selected mute since he was seven. We did lots of work around his self-esteem. And that's one thing I haven't mentioned, but when I work with children and the hierarchical way I work is I don't start working on your social skills until I know that your self-esteem is is okay enough and your self-awareness to start layering on the social skills. So that's one thing I haven't mentioned, but it's part of the hierarchical process of the talk about program. And so we actually started working with this young man on his self-esteem and got his confidence. And I think so much of it is about the environment, you know, making sure the environment fits the person you're working with. I, I think that's one of my kind of my key things that has to work. You know, what is the environment like for someone are we helping them to feel like, oh, I can do this, you know, and, and I want to do this. So building up someone's confidence, looking at their motivation, you know, what is the purpose of what you're doing? I mean, the, the textbooks called this social validity. You know, if I'm going to work with you on your social skills, do you want me to work? Do you want me to help you? Do you want to make friends? you want to, you know, be able to go out and get a job, you know, what is your, so what is your motivation? So with this young man, he was very motivated to have friends. He was very motivated to be accepted within the day service. And so actually his, we, we got the motivation right. We were working on his self-confidence, his self-esteem. And we also then were helping him with his body language as well. And after six months of him coming to us, he started speaking and then over the next year, he talked more and more. He got a girlfriend. Yay. Hello. And do you know what? The year after that, I took him to London and he spoke a conference to a room full of speech therapists. Wow. He stood up and said, hi, <laughs> I'm 23. And he told his story. And, you know, I still get goosebumps when I think about the difference we made in that man's life. I've got so many stories, I think, like that, where I've seen young people come to us they don't they're unhappy they don't have friends but if they are motivated if we can work out what is their motivator what do they want out of life and we can go right come on that. so I think one of my key things would be work out what the motivator is the other thing is look at the environment okay how can we support that young man I worked with to feel confident so what could we do within the environment to help him feel good about himself and often when we're looking at school children it's about going into school and thinking okay what is going wrong for this child in this school and what could we do to really support them to help them feel like okay schools are not a stressful place to be so sometimes it's about looking at quick fixes you know I don't like it when I see children get really stressed because the playground or I don't know if you call it the playground in Australia but you know when they go out at break time and it's all very chaotic and they then get into trouble and they get crying and they kick out at someone and you know what and there's a quick fix there there's a quick fix in that okay could we start a Lego club or something could we help that child to feel less stressed in that situation getting the staff the teachers on board and I think so the environment, one of the things is looking at, is the environment conducive to that child learning skill? So do we need to get rid of some of the stresses? The other thing in terms of the environment is, okay, do people, are people saying the same thing? Are we being consistent? You know, I remember one young lad I worked with and he, he was hugging people and his mum uh, inappropriately and his mum said, you know, I've 
I tried to teach him. I tell him to shake hands with strangers. But actually, if you look at this young lad, he was getting, he was 16, and he was getting very mixed messages in the school. Some teachers were allowing him to give them a hug. As some were going, personal space, personal space. <laughs> yeah. Some were going one arm length rule. And so he was never going to learn the rule while people were being inconsistent. So I think that partly I want, I like to go into places and say, okay, have we got the motivation there? B, what are we going to teach this child or help this child develop? So, and don't pitch in too high. Don't go and start teaching them to be assertive if they actually need work on their self-esteem. Don't go and teach them to be a better conversationist if you need to work on their nonverbal skills. So pitch in at the right level and then make sure that everyone is being consistent. And then finally, my third point would be about teaching the child the skills. Be explicit. Don't say, don't do that. That's naughty or you can't do that. Tell them what they need to do and then make it clear to them. So put them in a, a nice group. Help them learn those skills in a safe place. You know, have fun. You know, we're going to learn how to take turns. And if you've got the right teacher, the right teaching assistant, the right therapist doing that intervention, then the child will learn in that safe space. And then we help them to generalize those skills by making sure that the environment is backing up. And I'm going, well done, Sonia. That was really good looking. Well done. You did really good eye contact then. And everyone's saying that gosh, you're going you're gonna to then learn, you're going to generalize those skills because we're all backing it up. And I think those are probably the things I would pick out as my key things that I would ask people to think about if they're working with someone. I keep talking about this for a long time, Sonia. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm with you on that one. And because it is such a huge area and you mentioned some really important things here, Alex, and self-esteem is one that I think is probably something that's I get not missed, but not really accounted for a lot of the time, particularly with speech pathologists when there's almost boundary, you know, it's like, oh, self-esteem, we need to refer on to a psychologist. And, you know, there's, I guess there's that, the boundaries that need to be learned. Well, what is it in our realm? What needs a psych? When is it appropriate to have a psych on board? And when do we kind of apply some basic principles? And that's, I guess, you've already talked about, your talk about program has that hierarchy so that when you're training professionals, this, I guess, in an evidence-based way, they're going, okay, we're working on self-esteem, self-awareness, and then we move up the ladder and then start working on, I guess, dressing up the social skills. One of the things I think that can be really tricky, Alex, self-awareness, it is so hard for adults, let alone kids. So, when you have a young adult come to the clinic, you can kind of have a different level of conversation. You know, you can kind of work out their motivation and suss out where are they at with their self-awareness. And with kids, and look, particularly if they're within certain clinical populations, that can be really hard because they are really literal learners and you are explicitly teaching them every little sub-skill. And not to make this a, a tricky chat, but in the ideal world, there is that consistency and that team approach with the teachers and the school environment. And we see amazing results. What advice and what practical strategies do you give to parents when there isn't so much of that consistency or they're finding that their child is really struggling with self-awareness? What other strategies or practical tips or what do they do? I think the first thing to say about self-awareness is when I talk about self-awareness at that very basic level, 
so when I say you have to develop self-awareness and self-esteem before we work on social skills, actually, I am meaning just purely that kind of awareness that here is me. I'm a girl. I wear glasses. That's you. You're a girl. You wear glasses. And that very basic awareness, because the trouble is until a child has got that awareness of, oh, here's me and there's you. It's very hard to then teach them. Okay, you need to do eye contact. We need to then stand this close. So that's what I mean by that very basic self-awareness, just to clarify, really. Um, I'm not meaning that kind of awareness of, gosh, I'm not very good at using eye contact or I'm not very good at having conversations. I think that awareness of their own social skills difficulties comes as part of intervention. I don't worry if that you come to see me in my clinic and you're a teenager and you have no awareness of the fact that you're actually not very good at interacting appropriately. I don't actually worry about that lack of awareness because I consider that my job to kind of to work on that through working with you. The most important thing is to work out what what's on your agenda, what motivates you. How can I get you back through my door next week to want to work with me? And then I will work on increasing your awareness uh, through my therapy. Yes. That's the first. The other thing to say about self-esteem, maybe I'm not answering your question, Sonia, so you might have to um, correct me. But the other thing to say about self-esteem, I think it's one of those things that speech pathologists often say to me, is this my job? You know, should I really? And I would say that it is part of the talk about program. And I think it is our role or whoever's doing that initial assessment to identify that there is an issue here. And there, so if you think about, I'm just going to explain how it works really. So if you think about the child with very low self-esteem, their social skills as a result of their low self-esteem are not going to be as good. Now, if we as a speech pathologist go in and start trying to develop their social skills, we're being hampered by their low self-esteem. If we go in and start developing their self-esteem, helping them to feel better about themselves, actually what will naturally happen is their social skills will start to improve. And that's the kind of the reason behind the hierarchy. Now, so it is our remit to go in and say, actually, this child's got social skills difficulties, but there is an underpinning problem with their self-esteem, which needs to be sorted first. Who does that intervention? I don't think it matters too much. So it might be at that point I refer on to a colleague who is very good at working on self-esteem, who's got a self-esteem group just about to start, all those sort of things. It might be I go in and I train up some teachers to do that intervention. I don't think necessarily who does it, but I definitely think it's our remit to be identifying it as a reason why that child is struggling with their social skills. Yes. No, yeah, it does. But it makes sense. It makes complete sense. As I said before, it's there is that thing with professionals as to, oh, that's not my area. And, that, and I think it's a matter of knowing when is it not my area? When do I need a colleague to come and complement therapy? And I guess I just come from also at that practical level for parents who are just exhausted. And, you know, you have a ch- some children that sometimes can feel over-therapized, if I can use that word. So it's kind of just getting down to the basics. And I'm going to go right back to the thing you said right at the start, Alex, when you're looking at functional communication, I talk about this a lot, you know, at my clinic too, is look at the child or adolescent or adult, whoever it is, but what is going on in their world and understand what is happening 24 hours, seven days a week for that person in their world. So you can understand it and you can kind of step in their shoes and go, 
okay, I now have an idea of what's going on in your world. So now we have a little bit of an idea as to where to start and you kind of start then understanding how do I prioritise? Is this an area that a speech pathologist is going to work on? Which part do I need to refer on if I need to, etc.? So I'm glad you're talking about self-esteem because I think it's not talked about enough by speech pathologists. It's not understood very well. And so it does need more conversation. I think that's a separate topic, Alex. Thanks a lot. So we'll just have to reschedule another one on self-esteem only. But I think we just highlighted it. And it's something for parents, professionals to think about a little bit more in this whole conversation of social skills because it is hugely relevant. Now, I want to ask you this question. What if you have a kid that is just not interested in making friends? and they're not motivated, they don't care, they're happy with their own company. Tell me a groundbreaking story here of a case that you've cracked, Alex, because it happens every now and then where kids are just like, I don't understand why I need to be doing this. I'm not comfortable. It's not natural for me. And so it's hard to get that next step of, I guess, compliance or willingness to want to interact when there just isn't an understanding and they're happy with their own company. Talk to us. So I think there's, I probably deal with this differently depending on the age of the child. So I think if you're, and do you know what, the first thing I want to say is, you know, it's okay not to want to have friends. I think that, you know, we put as, you know, especially as neurotypical people, you know, we want to have friends, we're social beings, and therefore we think our child should really want to have a friend. If we have a child who actually wants to be in their own space, the first thing I think is, is you know, that's okay. It's okay to not want friends. It's okay to want their own company. I think there are things that they maybe need to understand. So it's about how we phrase it. We need to help them understand that sometimes we need to behave in a certain way so that, you know, other children accept us or that we... So I think for older people, older teenagers, I would be, you know, talking to them about actually what we need to do to go on and get into college or get through an interview or get a job or get a girlfriend, you know, see again, what is them, you know, if they might not want to friends, but they actually might want a girlfriend. There's someone actually in our day service who's that at the moment. He doesn't want to really interact with other people. He doesn't want to friendly, um, but he does want a girlfriend. So I think that first thing is to say it's okay. You've got to get then um, you've got to think about, so I'm thinking of a great story that was once told to me by an autistic adult. Okay. So she was doing a, I've got to know her actually. And she said to me, she said, you know, when I was younger, I used to hit other children. And she said, I didn't really like being around other children. I didn't want to have friends. I didn't like being around them. And she said, but they used to tell me, don't hit the other children because they won't want to be your friends. And she said, and that wouldn't work. Why would that work? Because actually, I didn't want them to be my friends. I wanted them to leave me alone. So actually hitting them worked for her. The behavior worked because then they left her alone. So she said, you know, actually, you've got to look at me as a little girl, she said, and find out how could you stop me hitting them? And she said, what would have worked is if you told me that if I don't hit them, I can go on the trampoline. Now, it kind of challenged me because I thought, actually, we wouldn't do that. We'd say, okay, oh, you've hit that person, therefore you can't go on the trampoline. Um, But actually, she was saying, use my motivator and then help me to learn that actually hitting other children is not acceptable. But how are you going to help me to learn that hitting other children is unacceptable? 
Okay, so she was saying, use a motivator. So for every lesson, you keep your hands to yourself and you don't hit them. You get a minute on the trampoline, you know, whatever. I think that so it's about looking at that child and thinking, okay, they may not want a friend. So let's not tell them that, well, you've got to take turns in class because then other children will like you. No, don't say that because it's not going to be relevant to them. They don't want other children like them. They're happy within their own space. But it's about teaching them what is acceptable behavior, what's unacceptable behavior. And then, you know, making it work, teaching them in the right way so that they want to learn, you know. Does that help? Has that answered your question? Totally. <laughs> and Alex, what you've done there is you've just reinforced a general behavioral principle there, haven't you? You know, reframing to the positive, looking at what's important for that individual, because that will give them the reason to do or not do something. But it has to be meaningful to that individual, not to the individual that's telling them it's right or wrong or et cetera, et cetera. So it's getting into their world and understanding what's important to them so they understand it in their terms. And the other thing that I would say, it's so much is about giving someone insight. You know, when we work with people, you know, and we're trying to help them understand what that behaviour is doing or you know so much of it's about us giving them insight so actually when you do this actually it makes people feel uncomfortable or you know when you when this happens and you do this that can actually make people feel quite uncomfortable or they feel angry or it's so it's better to do this because then that means people may will so it's all about giving that child insight into how we behave in this appropriately in this very complicated world Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's the other thing I would say. And I agree with what you're saying because really it's about providing that clarity, isn't it, for that person? Because often there can be confusion. There can be confusion about why has that person reacted in that way? You know, I don't know, shrug shoulders, walk off or, oh, okay, thank you for helping me why that person has reacted in that way. And then that builds that extra I guess, social skill, if you like, of, you know, that empathy or just that understanding of others and reading social situations. And that is going to come with insight building and someone explaining it rather than assuming, well, you should just know that that's not appropriate. And that's not how it works for lots of kids and even some adults out there. They are confused about the boundaries and about the rules, the unspoken rules. So often, speech pathologists, carers or people in that person's environment need to kind of be that nurturing support and have that clarity to explain things in a way that is meaningful to them. Totally, totally agree with you. So let me turn this conversation a little, Alex, because I know we've been chatting away and I get caught up in lots of chats, but I want to talk about technology because I know a lot of people out there are kind of going, oh, you know, social skills have become worse over the years because technology is, you know, has come into the picture and you know, we'll go to a party and people will be sitting there on their phones, on their iPads, and no one's talking to each other. It happens, Alex, you know, and at a personal and professional level, I've seen a change. I'm observing lots of changes in terms of general human interaction. So I guess in summary, what's your opinion or thought on that area? So it's certainly changing the way we're, we are communicating. So, and I think what's interesting is that it's changed very much how we put friendships, like we define friendships, relationships, because, you know, we are communicating much more through, obviously, we're texting, we're using social media. 
And so I think the biggest impact is on that relationship skills. And I remember my teenager saying to me not long ago that he had, you know, he had a friend in, in Germany or something. And I said, oh, who's that? And he said, oh, it's just someone that he interacts with through a game. You know, it changes the way that we, you know, and I was like, well, he's not a friend. Um, but, you know, um, <laughs> it is different. It's certainly different. Um, I also think there's a lot of good stuff about technology. I am a little bit, you know, of the kind of that we shouldn't totally discourage. Yeah, I don't think I'm not one of those people that go, oh, it's a bad thing. You know, in the good old days, children used to play with each other and talk to each other and look at each other in the eye. Because I think there's a lot of I think that is true. But I think the technology has a lot to offer us. I think the one I mean, we use I mean, look at uh, video modeling, for example, using videos to help children learn skills. That's a well-established technique to help children generalize. OK, suddenly I video you doing the skill. You see it and you go, oh, I can do it. You're much more likely to be able to generalize that skill. But there are things that are very exciting, like, I mean, virtual reality. VR, I think, is going to be brilliant for a lot of the children that we work with. Because actually, we can put that person into an environment and they can try these skills out in a safe environment and then they can transfer that. And you know, all the research at the moment shows that any learning we do in the virtual reality environment does transfer into the real world. So I think, yes, technology has changed how we define uh, friendships, how we interact. And I think for when we're talking about friendship skills, there are issues, you know, about that. The boundaries, the fact that children are, you know, texting each other right into the evenings and, you know, and all the bullying side. I do think there are issues. However, I also see the positives of technology. And I'm very excited about the kind of all the, the stuff that can happen through particularly VR. I do think that it's an exciting world we live in for all its problems. So there we are. I'm a bit kind of like, you know. Well, there's a balance. And I think that's what it comes down to is just looking at the individual. What are they doing? What technology are they engaging or interacting with? And what consequence does that have? So it's all kind of needs that individual assessment. But I think you're right. The way that we're interacting generally as humans is constantly changing, you know, over time. But the VR stuff sounds really interesting. Is this an area that you've been are you researching in VR at the moment? What are you doing with your research right now, Alec? No, I'm not. But my youngest son is actually at university doing computer science. And so I'm kind of like, and he's quite interested in some of the stuff. So but I'm not technical enough for that. The stuff we're researching at the moment is at the moment we are redesigning the assessment, the talk about assessment tool to be a much wider tool so that it will enable the, the assessor to look at some of the things that we've been talking about, to look at not only the social skills, but also the kind of the social validity, the kind of the motivators, looking at the environment. It's going to be a much wider tool that also then helps you set targets and measure effectiveness. And I'm working with a colleague who's doing a PhD in this. So it'll be, we're hoping that in about three years time, it will be a tool that will be validated and one day standardized. So that's what we're hoping. But I've spent the last 10 years doing working primarily with schools to help them track the progress of children using the Talk About program. So that's another, it's research with a little R, I suppose, but it's definitely, 
I'm very interested in looking at schools primarily that take on the talk about program, put it into their school life. And then we measure the progress over the years and we track who's improved and and how they've improved and what interventions have helped. So um, that's really helped me get a real sense of works and what is not so successful. Yeah, that's fantastic. And the talk about book series or the program, that's been in place for a number of years now, hasn't it, Alex? Yeah, I mean, the first one came out in 96. So ages ago, what's that like, you know, goodness me, 24 years ago. And that came out, was doing that work with the young adults with intellectual disabilities. And it came out as a result of that research that I did. Um, But actually then in the last, sort of mainly in the last 10 years, I have been adapting it so that it, so that the books now are more designed for a population. So if you're working in a primary school, you're working with young children and you want to work on self-awareness and self-esteem, there is a book that is a complete package that's the talk about for children developing self-awareness and self-esteem, the yellow one. And it's a complete package to help you as a teacher, as a therapist, work through self-awareness, self-esteem. And with all the games in there, you download the activities, you then can laminate them if you want. So I've been working really over the last 10 years to make the each book kind of be a sort of a really good, practical, standalone resource to work on an area for a client group. So we've got the teenagers book, we've got an adults book, and we're just having the new one this year is the talk about theory of mind book. So that's coming out later on this year. So I'm trying to kind of like make it as easy for a busy teacher or a busy clinician to pick it up and go, right, here's my intervention. (laughs) Yes, that's what we need. That's fantastic. Congratulations, by the way, because a lot, a lot of work goes into what you are doing, a lot of work and a lot of time and energy. And it's also all your years of experience too, Alex. It's putting all that knowledge into, you know, these teaching tools that you're putting together. It's just massive. So congratulations. Oh, thank you, Sonia. Do you know, I feel just lucky. I feel lucky that, you know, how amazing that the thing that I love, the thing that I just really gets me up in the morning is actually something that I can write about. And, you know, so I, do you know, I genuinely feel lucky. Yes. No, thank you. And look, there are resources that are really, they're hugely needed. And you've talked a lot about, I guess, you know, the professionals, the teachers and the clinicians. Are they parent friendly too? Or is it just harder because clinicians and classroom teachers already have a group of kids that, you know, you can practice those skills with? How does it, have you already done a parent friendly kind of version that can be practiced in that kind of home environment? Yeah, I think it is harder for parents. You know, when we talk about developing children's social skills, it's so much easier to do that in a group with their peers because, you know, we are talking about natural social interaction. So a child is more likely to, it's easier to do those activities with their little friends, okay, or their classmates. But I think that you can transfer those skills into home life. It's easier to do it, I think, as a family. So I think some families I've worked with, you know, they've taken the ideas and they've put them into family life. So, for example, a good example would be, you know, one thing that we always do at the beginning of every talk about group is we uh, pass around a feelings board and we talk and I ask you, how are you feeling today, Sonia? And you say, I'm. I'm happy. And I go, why? And you say, and then you turn to the child next to you and you go, how are you feeling? We get children very right from the word go. We get them talking about their feelings. We use a feelings board so they can point to the different images if they need to. And we talk about why. And it's a very good 
beginning thing. So how could we make that suitable for family life? Well, I've, we could put some feelings up on the fridge, you know, and every morning we come in and at breakfast time, we put our photo by the feeling we feel today. And then when we come back in from school, we put our feeling, our photo next to the feeling we feel now. You know, it's just a way of talking about feelings. There is, and I would say to families that don't be put off by the fact that looks like an intervention for schools. I have made it practical for teachers because teachers are very busy. So I've designed it as something that teachers will be able to pick up and use or clinicians. But actually the activities you can still do, you know, around a a dining room table. Um, You can still do some of the activities while you're doing, having supper. You know, I remember when my boys were little, I remember when they were quite little, I said to them one evening meal, I said, right, we're going to do something different today, boys. We're going to all go round the round the table and we're all going to talk about our days. So who wants to start? And they looked at me as like, mm, like that. And so one of them went, you're right. And so I said, so how was your day? And tell us the important parts about your day. And he told us a couple of things. And I said, right, if, would anyone like to ask Ed any questions? And, um, and um, this feels like a therapy group, mum. And, um, and I said, yeah, I know, but let's, let's do it, please. Come on, let's try it. Anyway, and so the first meal was a bit awkward. They all kind of, but do you know what? If we did that for about 15 years, we did it. And the boys, of course, got used to it. It didn't take long. And we'd all sit down for an evening meal. And one of them would say, so who's going to start? Who's going to tell us about their day? And do you know what? It's until the and the last one left home um, a year ago. But do you know what? We always, we always do it. And it became part of family life. And I think, you know, yes, initially it's, it feels a bit awkward when as a parent you're sitting down saying, let's play this game. Or let's do this while we have breakfast. Um, but children actually like it. They like it, you know. And so it always made me laugh, especially when we had visitors and they'd sit down and the visitors would look a bit straight, you know, shocked as one of my children went, do you want to go first? <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. Nice. <laughs> and I'm glad I'm not the only one, by the way, because my kids wouldn't know any different. They just think that's how the conversation goes at the dinner table. So, yeah, you can call it therapizing or you can call it relationship building, Alex. (laughs) But I think the fact that any family is having a conversation around a meal is fantastic this day and age. So even if that's happening, that's a big step in the right direction, I think anyway, in my old school values. But yeah, I think it's just super important in even having your child comfortable in telling you how their day was. You know, that's I think as parents, you come back to basics and you say, just want my kid to be comfortable talking to me and opening up and communicating with me so I do know what's happening in their day and that's from when they're you know three years old to I'm sure when they're adolescents and adults too it's it's even more pertinent then so Alex talk about is an amazing resource that has been for a number of years you've got new stuff coming out which is awesome and very exciting for clinicians three years is a bit of a wait for your assessment tool by the way but anyway that's just how it goes doesn't it we out later on this year and then what the colleague I'm working with is going to spend three years doing a, the rest of her PhD validating it then we'll have a second edition that will come out in three years time so yeah no it will be out very soon okay so we've got something to look forward to this year and then we'll get all the validation stuff in a few years <laughs> just to get statistical and proper and clinical about it all But certainly I think what's important is for parents listening and for carers listening that a lot of the things in the Talk About series are super easy to transfer into home environment and everyday environment outside of the learning 
and the group settings. And I think that's really important because they are easily transferable. So Alex, we've had an, an amazing long chat. Thank you for sharing your expertise. And thank you again for your work with social skills. Tell us a little more about where we can learn about you and your programs. So, I mean, I've got a website, so it's alexkelly.biz, B-I-Z. Um, you could also go to a speakingspace.co.uk, which is my work uh, website. Um, I am coming out to Australia next year, so in 2021 in March. So, and I'm going to be going to the Gold Coast, to Melbourne and to Sydney and doing some workshops. So I'm really happy for you to you know, if anyone can't get to one of those or wants information on that, please email me. So you could email me. So should I give you my email or contact me through the website? I think we'll easily get your email through the website. And you've got a really comprehensive website too, Alex, which is fantastic. So heading over to your website, we'll get more info on you and your programs and your workshops, which is very exciting. And so on a final note, are there any other key messages you'd like to share? when it comes to social skills and our children? Oh, do you know what? I think that the key message I would would share is if you've got a child who's struggling, don't pitch in too high. I think that would be my probably my main top tip. So if, if you've got a child that is struggling to make friends, is struggling with their social skills, don't pitch in and start teaching them a skill that's too difficult. Look at the hierarchy and think, you know, what's my, the self-esteem like of my child? You know, what are their nonverbal skills like, their verbal skills, their assertiveness, and just pitch in and, and work at those foundation skills of self-esteem and body language. Don't go higher than that if you've got a child with having difficulties in that area. And I think if I'm allowed a second top tip would be think about get inside your child's head, think about what motivates them, what's important to them. So that would be my second tip probably. So I would narrow it down to those. Is that okay? That is fantastic. Alex Kelly, thank you so much for joining the Chat About Children today. Thank you for having me. Wonderful work being done there by Alex Kelly in the social skills area. There are options and opportunities to support social skills, whether it's kids, adolescents or adults. So it's a matter of just reaching out and asking for that support because some wonderful results are occurring. If you've enjoyed today's episode, I'd love for you to share it with family, friends and colleagues. And also please remember to leave a rating and review and subscribe to the Chat About Children podcast. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. I celebrate you and look forward to chatting soon. Thanks for joining the Chat About Children with Sonia Vestalich. www.chataboutchildren.com.